Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Late November, we're here, you're listening, Football Matters in the Pac-12 and everywhere else. I'm Yogi Roth, joined by Ted Robinson and Michael Molinari. It's Ted and Yogi's Pac-12 Adventure with our producer, Michael. Fellas, we're coming off a beautiful trip to Pullman, Washington. We got the big game this weekend. A lot of things have happened. We have two games left in the regular season. So, Ted, how are you feeling as we kick off the week here? Well, guys, look, all three of us and our fabulous crew that Michael Spearhead's had up had the Pullman experience, which we often joke about it, and we do joke, although it is, it's just such a hard place to get to and to leave from. But when you're there, it's terrific. And I, I think we all felt that way Saturday. It was a nice day. The crowd was great. Washington State has this wonderful tradition of Dad's Weekend. Everybody, my school, every school has a Parents' Weekend. The Cougs do a Mom's Weekend and a Dad's Weekend. And, we, you know, we were in the hotel. I was bumping into Dad's in the elevator that you know, knew us from the from the Pac-12 network, and they were commenting how excited they were to have this game. The Cougs played great after really laying an egg the previous week in Berkeley. So it was just, it was fun because we we guys, we know Pullman, it's a true college town. And we don't have as many of those in the conference because we have schools in, in major metropolitan areas, right? But Pullman's a true college town. And that was really nice. It was our one and only game there this year. I enjoyed the heck out of that. I echo all that. You know what? The weather was nice and we had a day game. The Cougs played well in a packed house, and it was everything you could possibly want from a trip to the Palouse in November. I love that. Plus, plus, Yogi, you got the safari on the way. Oh, <laughs> did I ever? Well, I'll tell you this. For me, the, the weekend was amazing because when you're in Pullman, in that part of the country, you know everything isn't like two seconds away, which I think is beautiful from a guy who grew up in the middle of nowhere. So practice ends on Friday. I got to go to FedEx and print out my stuff. So I go with Sam Polis, who has a variety of roles. I don't know what title we would give him other than the guy who basically is the glue for all of us in the booth and the truck. But we got to drive for 45 minutes to Moscow, Idaho to print everything out. And then after the game, I got to drive with Ernie Sparger, who works on our crew a couple hours back. You know, we had a nice little stop at a local establishment and somewhere in the middle of nowhere where there was no service. So you just talked and it was really cool to connect with our crew and different people. Wait a minute, Yogi. So you stopped at Eddie's Chinese restaurant in Colfax, huh? <laughs> we had two tickets, by the way, two tickets on the way back. Oh, really? Oh, one no. was a 65 and a 60. I think they're going to have to throw that one out. Wow. Did, did you get burned by Colfax 25? That is the official name of the city, as you know. I think another one was near the Colfax border. We'll leave it yeah. at that. So Colfax is this town. It's probably, what, 15 miles north of Pullman? And so on the drive between Spokane and Pullman, which is probably 75 miles, Colfax is the only town you go through. And you learn very quickly in this conference, everybody, and it happened to me in 1987, I think, for the first time, you learn to go 25 through Colfax. You just learn. And when I say 25, like you said, it's not 25.3, <laughs> it's 25. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's that's very true. I got a ticket as well, but it was just for parking in Spokane as I went to get a cup of coffee. So we got three on the weekend. Uh, there you go. Thankfully, this podcast, our favorite number is four for our four downs. And we bring you through four thoughts or four big topics from the Pac-12. And then Michael has his humanity moment of the week, which continues to get all the rave reviews. So 
instead they they dig our analysis a little bit, but ultimately it's for Michael and the human mm. moment of the week. So we'll just continue to tease that and start with our first of four downs. We've got to talk about the top two teams. You know, Oregon, Utah, Oregon wins the North. They're going to play in the Pencil title. Utah has to win out. And Ted, I think when we watch these teams play, they're talented at the quarterback position, obviously, but the area that is not sexy, does not lead headlines, is the defense. I watched both of those games back today. Curious your takeaway from their defense and how they've been dominant throughout the majority of the season. Well, here, here's what I'd say, guys. And again, we were in Pullman and en route, so we didn't see the games live. But to read about them, UCLA playing better, as we know. But even when they struggled last season or in the early weeks of this season, their offense, when Dorian Thompson-Robinson was playing, their offense was pretty good. The numbers all bear that out. And Utah completely smothers them, right? Smothers the UCLA offense. Uh, DTR, bunch of turnovers, rough game. Oregon holds Arizona without a touchdown. That's Kevin Sumlin's offense, right? Mm-hmm. Without a touchdown? That in his Texas A&M career, I read, only happened twice. It's clear. Those two teams, as we said all year, have separated themselves. I view our conference this year as 2-10. and 10. I think the other 10 teams, the difference between 3-12 and 12 isn't as extreme as it often is in conferences. But 1-2 and two are, have clearly separated themselves from the rest. And to me, it's rooted in defense. And there's another perfect example. So when the national perception gets out there, which often happens, uh, we know this, people look at the Pac-12 and they think it's flag football. And Oregon and Utah are proving week in and week out this year that is not the case. The Pac-12 is starting to get some spin on the uh, East Coast shows, by the way. I did see who had a big weekend, made some strides, Pac-12. So I think some people uh, in, the, in the East Coast are starting to take notice, number one. The other thing I read about was our star Ethan Fernia from a few weeks back about a bulletin board material for Utah. And Wait a minute, Yogi. This is your dude, man. I know. Would, I you, would, you, would you please have an advisory session with him? <laughs> Not good. You do that to your own team, and you do that to maybe other teams that aren't Utah. Because I, I had to chuckle. I don't know if you guys did, but when I read a quote from Zach Moss saying, on the way to the game, we made sure that we had replaying, I think it was on the bus, Ethan Fernia's comments about how UCLA will be the tougher team. I was like, you don't have a chance. I didn't think they had much of a chance going into the game, to be quite honest with you, because I think Utah, I think Utah is the best team in our conference right now. That just that team is that culture is literally based in the word toughness. And man, it was it was a, I'll say this, it was a fun game to watch because you gotta give UCLA credit early on. They did move the ball. You know, Chip Kelly, like we talked about last week. He is creative. He, uh, you know, schemed up first downs, but the turnovers, you just have to be perfect against Utah and UCLA wasn't that. And the minute Utah got rolling, man, it was, it was over. And I thought they played their most complete game, uh, really in, in all phases this year, other than not converting the fake pump. But I love the fact that they ran it. Hey, can we touch on one thing here in the uh, social media phase with all the conversation on the national front about CFP? Did you see there was a uh, the Athletic put out a Heisman straw poll? They put the results out today, and there's only one Pac-12 player that shows up, which doesn't surprise us because we understand. As I've often said, Yogi, when I steered you into this Heisman voting, what did I tell you? Pac-12 player has to be 25% better than a player from any other part of the country, right, to have even a respectable shot to win. Anyway, who's the only Pac-12 player that shows up in their straw poll? Tyler Huntley. How about that? 
Wow. So I was fascinated to see some recognition because he's playing. The numbers will all say he's playing the best quarterback in the conference this year. And, and he, it's nice to see some recognition for that. He won the postgame press conference, too. He, he had a nice little moment that uh, I'm sure got some attention. Oh, yeah. That's that's definitely on the social media roundup if you watch our Pac-12 games. I, yeah, I think it was a soundbite of the year. It trumped Ethan Fernia's of basically calling out Utah and saying they'd be the tougher team that day. And it was something along the lines, Michael, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it was, uh, I have a lot of confidence in my team, more than I have in myself, and I got a lot in myself. That was it. Yeah, That was it. But the way he said it and the smile on his face, it was just, <laughs> just great. And so on the Heisman thing for one second, the other defensive player in their straw poll, Chase Young, the Ohio State defensive end, was fourth in their straw poll behind three quarterbacks, no surprise. But I'm just sitting there. So that was my eye roll moment. Because if Evan Weaver were playing in the Big Ten, right, or the Big 12, or well, the Big 12, they don't play defense, but in the SEC and had his numbers, don't you think Evan, Evan Weaver would be in that mix? 100%. I mean, to me, that's, I mean, we got criticized for it because we put him up on our Heisman graphic a couple weeks ago. And, and that was the point, right? Anywhere else. The guy's leading the nation in tackles at the time, I think by 19, was the next closest guy. The Chase Young thing to me is a great example of whoever was in that straw poll not recognizing the definition of the Heisman, which is excellent, quote, excellence with integrity. Dude's suspended for at least two games, right, based on taking money. Now, the situation, should players be given money, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's completely against the rules for the history of time in college athletics. So, that's that's even somewhat surprising to me uh, that he's that high. And to just piggyback on the Huntley thing, the, what I like about him being in that straw poll is that that, to me, tells me people are watching him play in the way he plays. Because his touchdown interception numbers aren't Joe Burrows. They're not even Justin Herbert's. But he's the, he's the you, you term the word efficiency. He's playing at such an efficient level, and he's doing things that Joe Burrow is not being asked to do. His offense, to me, is more complicated than majority of Heisman finalists right now in terms of he's not playing catch he's playing the quarterback position you saw it again if you watch the tape back against UCLA's defense deep play action pass variety of different ways he's getting the ball out so uh, I'd love to see come the Pac-12 title game people hold out on their votes and the next day somebody whether it's Tyler Huntley or Justin Herbert somebody get enough votes just to go to New York because I don't like when it's just three guys and it's basically a popularity contest based on September at least for players on the West Coast, like Garner Minshew didn't get to go to New York City. And being the Heisman, I've been there probably six or seven times. It's such a great experience that players should be celebrated at. And to me, I'd love to see one of those guys get to go. Totally agree. I think Christian McCaffrey has proven that the Pac-12 players will uh, eventually turn out to be pretty good. And uh, maybe he was robbed. I'll go back into history a little bit. Michael, erase maybe. Yeah. <laughs> That was an embarrassment. All right, so we got Oregon, Utah. The CFP is going to come out this week, potentially by the time that you listen to it. It's going to be really interesting to see where Alabama slotted with the injury to Tua Tungavailoa. Uh, wishing him the very best. He's an incredible uh, young man. But when we talk about the CFP, it's going to be interesting because to me, off of my eye, like the quote-unquote eye test, I thought Utah looked better than Oregon. Not by much, but over the weekend better. So do they flip them? Do they all of a sudden Utah get ranked high, which would probably be the best thing for this conference based on Oregon's strength of schedule, the teams they've played, they'll be undefeated potentially in conference play heading into the title game. So a lot to, I think, see after tomorrow's rankings and based on how the committee views how you recently played. 
Yeah, I mean, look, what happened this past weekend, you can bounce them all around. Worried, I, admittedly, from a Pac-12 viewpoint, that Minnesota, with their Penn State win, could be a player. But that now has been, I think that's been doused with their loss to Iowa. Baylor was another undefeated. And if Baylor holds on to their first half against Oklahoma, they're a player. Now they're out. But Oklahoma's in. You know, look, ultimately, Oregon and Utah are going to have to, the, the survivor of those two is going to have to stand up and be counted without as upside a win as you want to see them have. And the clearest, look, guys, I think the clearest scenario that hurts the Pac-12 is Georgia. Yeah. Because Georgia has two very good wins. And if they win the SEC championship game, they will have an extremely strong case as a one loss. They just simply will have better wins than, than the Pac-12 champion will have. And the, the the farce of it all, of course, is Alabama. And that's where we all, even with the, and obviously no one is thrilled about Tua's injury. Now, the, the, the narrative that's been placed out there by SEC rooters that, oh, if they win the Iron Bowl without Tua, that's even better for them. Well, I don't, I don't understand that. And the point is, is the CFP about the, you know, the four most deserving teams or is it about Alabama and the next three? And that's, to me, the, so far, so far, the CFP's track record has been the second one. Uh, mm-hmm. I want it to be the first one. Yeah. There was a great stat that I saw on the internet earlier today, and it was about Utah. And it was comparing them and the other top teams in the top 10 as of today and the four- and five-star players. So I just want to read this to you. And, and, Michael, I'd love your reaction. Ohio State has 60 four- or five-star players on their roster. LSU has 51. Alabama has 69. Clemson has 40. Georgia has 59. Oregon has 32. Oklahoma has 50. So just some numbers for you. Utah has eight. Eight four- and five-star high school recruits. My reaction well, is Kyle Whittingham's a hell of a coach. That would be one thing because he develops guys. We've seen that year in, year out this decade. He even told us in a meeting earlier this year, I see, I see the potential rather than maybe the, the immediate impact, but I see the potential impact. And we bring guys in. They're going to fit our system. It can grow into our system. And I think those numbers, that's what those numbers tell me. Obviously, you guys know I don't put a whole lot of stock in that star stuff anyway. So that to me is more reason not to. But secondly, to me, to use another conference analogy, what, and he's my friend, but what Mike Montgomery did in basketball in this conference is what Kyle Whittingham is doing at Utah with football is exactly that is taking players that aren't, you know, everybody's all American. They don't put hats on ESPN 12 to announce their, their, their college choice. <laughs> and, and what they do is he takes them and he has them for three to four years and he makes them better players. That's what Mike did in basketball. That is what a lot of us cling to as sort of the college model. <laughs> I know that doesn't always apply today. I get that. But it's what a lot of us like to think of the college model. And Whittingham does it in football brilliantly. Yeah, totally agree. Just a little tease there. We got our signing day show December 18th, I believe, on the Pac-12 Network. So tune into that one. You enjoy uh, that, Yoke. Yeah, I, I will. <laughs> about 232 emails. A lot of people do. A lot of people enjoy it. Right, God bless That's you. Okay. God bless all of you. All right, let's get to our second down. Uh, it's fun because we're a part of this one. It's rivalry, the beginning of rivalry weekend, uh, weekends, you could say, in college football here in the Pac-12. SCUCLA, we're calling Cal and Stanford. Ted, we talked about this one a little bit last week in terms of the history of calling this game. You've done this one a bunch of times, but I want to talk about Cal first. You know, what do you think about Cal coming into this game, both teams coming off a loss? Both teams, I haven't heard anything from Cal today, but I don't know who's playing quarterback for either one of these teams in this ball game. Curious your initial thoughts. Yeah, that's the first thing is that, look, this is 
you know, Stanford football more so than Cal, but both schools have been defined by terrific quarterback play through the years. And it's very uncertain and uneven this year because of injury, both Costello and Garbers. We don't know now it's rivalry games. So you throw a lot of this stuff out. I hope that the passion that's normally there for this game is there. It often has been despite records because the excitement for both is a little down, especially at Stanford, Stanford, has a massive ta- massive task ahead of them to win one more game, even though they have two at home. They've got to win one to get to a bowl for an 11th straight year. Uh, that is that is really tough. Stanford has struggled on offense so much this year. It opened our eyes to see Davis Mills have the first 500-yard pass game in Stanford football history. When you think about the le- – I mean, I can sit here and spend the next 30 seconds rattling off an incredible litany of quarterbacks, and no one has done that at Stanford until Davis Mills – so that's optimism. And then on the Cal side, guys, here's what, what I'm struggling with, trying to understand. How does Cal play so well two weeks ago against Washington State and for the third straight year really smother the Washington State air raid and then get completely torched by an air raided USC the very next Saturday? That one puzzles me. Yogi? I got you, man. I broke that one down. It was the first game I watched when I woke up this morning, dropped Zane off at school, went right to the film, and... It was the USC receivers, number one, making plays, and Keaton Slovis doing what Anthony Gordon could in, in terms of, I call it second reaction game. So first reaction game would be drop back, get the ball out. It's a clean pocket. Second reaction game was when you have to move a little bit. And he did. And, man, he was, he was impressive. And where he placed the ball, he gave his guys chances. And whether it was Drake London, Michael Pittman Jr., Amon Ross St. Brown, those guys – I mean, they made plays down the field. You can look at the – there was a touchdown right before half. Ted, you were probably just about to take off on your plane, leaving Pullman. And they just throw up a go route. I want to say it was like 40 or 50 yards, something like that. And Michael Pittman just beat the DB one-on-one. They caught a touchdown right before the half. And I just think that was that was the difference. Their receivers are just so much better. And it reminded me, like, we get into this world where defense is so good, the defenses are great, but offense knows where they're going. Like, and I used to love that at receiver. Like, I didn't play DB in college because I was a 4-6 guy. But I knew that me at 4-6 and you at 4-4, I could get open because I know where I'm going. And you don't. And that's what I saw in that ball game. Point blank, it was the wideouts of USC in the quarterback play. That's great. So you were the Brandon Arcanado of your day. I understand that. <laughs> now, now here's but, – but, so here's my question. So was this similar to USC beating Utah? So you guys talked about that the same way, right? A lot of this was the third quarterback, Fink, throwing the ball up and having the receivers win. It was not because it was on rhythm. You know, it was okay. it was part of the you'll watch that back and you'll say, mm-hmm. wow, Keaton Slovis, I'm surprised he's not the freshman of the week. They gave it to Drake London in the Pac-12. But he looked there, there's arguments if you took that game and say, you know, that that might be the best passer in the conference. Like there's times in the game where you watch him and you're like, whoa. I mean, he did it every which way. He did it to his tight end on the run-pass option game where he'd suck up the linebackers. He'd do it to uh, you know receivers that were playing the slot. He'd do it outside. I mean, they, they weren't winning jump balls in the backyard. They were, they were strategically attacking Cal downfield, and they just made more plays. All right, so we have another rivalry game Saturday, which is, of course, USC-UCLA. Just so fans understand, these are the two games. These schools will not play on Thanksgiving weekend. That's why these two are the first weekend, and the other rivalry games are all Thanksgiving weekend. So here's my question to Michael and Yogi. If USC wins Saturday, they finish 8-4 and four with the wide receiver group that you just talked about, Yogi, how talented they are. We know how talented some of their young defenders are. Funga came back and played Saturday night. Quarterbacks, they've had to play three this year. 
but you have clearly have two with Daniels coming back from injury and Slovis, who's established themselves. How do I mean, I understand this is conversation. I'm certainly not promoting anything. I don't think either of you are, but how do you even consider a coach change at eight and four with as much young talent as USC has in the corral right now? It's puzzling. I'll go first, Yogi. I know you've got a lot to say. Um, <laughs> I think you have the battle of people who are realists who understand that Clay Helton's done an amazing job with the circumstances he's been faced with versus the people that were USC, we should be playing for the national championship every year because we're USC. And I think that's what it's going to come down to. Which of those two camps wins the battle? Yeah. I mean, as you reference, I got a bunch to say here. Overall, this is where I kind of net out on that. Number one, let's just go with what it's reality, right? Reality is that Utah needs to win out to go to the Pac-12 title. That's, re that's reality, right? So USC's in it. So that means they have to practice. Like you can't just shut it down and not practice that final Thanksgiving week of the season and just move on. Like you just can't do it and just get ready for a bowl game. That's what a lot of teams will do after their final regular season game if you're not playing in the title game. Give the kids the week off, let them do school, let them go home for Thanksgiving, whatever it is. You can't do it here. So to me, you can't make any sort of rash decision based on your team is to prepare for a championship game um, and potential Rose Bowl berth. Like we're talking that that's a legit reality. If just say Colorado, Steven Montez, whatever, who knows what will happen. So that's one. Two is Mike Bowen recently became the athletic director there. And I believe and he said as as much, you can evaluate the program. Right. And I've been around that program, I think, more than anybody in the country. The culture is as healthy as it is anywhere in Pac-12 football, um, at least any building that I've been in in my career. And it's because of Clay. And the team is dramatically young, as you guys just referenced. Quarterback has probably the best one-two combination right now, you'd say, in the entire league. So based on next year, they're going to be just fine at the position. Offensive line is extremely young. Receivers have dramatic depth. Backfield has a lot of depth. And the defense is young. So... If you have a good culture, and if it was me today, I would pick them to win the Pac-12 South next year, just based on no graduate transfers going anywhere yet, just kind of what the rosters would be if you projected them today. So that being said, why would you blow it up? There's no rumblings of staff issues. Like everything that Clay was asked and tasked to change a year ago, he did. So I, I'm with you there. And then you look at the history of the school. And, and I say it because I lived it. Everybody thinks that SC just wins 10 games all the time. If we go back in history, right, and let's just take out Pete Carroll, okay? 1978, 1979, they go to the Rose Bowl, right? Like, it's not as though, and then they win a natty and clearly have a ton of success. It's not as though the school every year has won 12 games, right? Pete spoiled them with the success that he had. Seven years, top four in the country. And I get what you could be, and I get the L.A. and the hotbed that it is in recruiting, but I also get the Chris Petersons at Washington and David Shaw's at Stanford, and Kyle Whittingham's at Utah, and every school now has sufficient funds to compete at the same level as USC. And, and that, to me, is the realistic approach to this. So I'm with you. Uh, it's a huge game. They got a win last year after losing, and obviously Joshua Kelly went crazy, 289 yards rushing. But I, I'm about pumping the brakes right now. True assessment of the program. And if, it's a if they're on a championship trajectory, why would you get them off the trajectory? Yeah. I, and don't you guys think one of the measures I talk about a lot when we the stuff back and forth on 
on our car rides and planes is you know, what's the expectation. The school has to stand up and say, what is the expectation? And I know there's a, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a graduate of another school that would say the same thing is that we're not here to go eight and four. That's probably unrealistic, but I, I also get that it's the way a lot of people think. And that would be to me, the one situation the USC needs to stand up and say, is that our expectation? Is it okay to be eight and four with young talent battling injury this year and stay with the, stay the course, or do I have to go get the blockbuster higher at cost in, in the hopes of being in the CFP every year? Do we want to be Alabama basically? Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. And, and I don't envy the AD either. I mean, you're in a tough spot right off the bat, but it'll be interesting to watch. I, I can't wait to watch that game. I can't wait to watch UCLA come to the Coliseum SC. To me, the team that wins is the team that is, as Herm Edwards taught us earlier in the year, is passionate but not emotional and that's going to be the biggest difference historically this game everybody knows each other and you're playing and you grew up playing against one another in high school so it's the personal fouls it's can you control yourself in a hostile environment in a critical moment uh, i can't wait to watch this one so uh yeah we'll, we'll see how that one shakes out all right we're gonna to get to our third down here um this is on our network washington state oregon state and oregon state one win and they go bowling and when you look at Washington State, pretty interesting. One win, they go bowling. I mean, this is this is a really big game for that. And I think for all of us, we'd agree that it's probably the coolest moment, you know, of the season in terms of final games at home stadiums for senior night. Is Tyler Holinsky, He's going to be honored on senior night. His mom Kim and his dad. They're both going to be there with the other parents uh, prior to the game to basically go through the senior night ceremony. So. Curious what you guys think about that game and, and that situation that's happening there. Ted, I'll let you roll. Well, the, you know, very quick, the game is probably secondary in this conversation. The game is just simple. The winner gets the sixth win in bowl. And it's probably, I mean, let's face it, it's got a heck of a chance to be the loser doesn't because both of those teams have to go play their rivalry games on the road the following weekend. So there is significance for the winner there. Uh, but look, the Holinsky story is 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 so moving. Uh, Yogi is part of who you are. Made sure that I had a chance to meet Kim Helinski last year when they were at Corvallis, the Oregon State students doing a wonderful job to follow through on the, on these issues that the Helinski's hope has, has drawn up. And to, to know that despite um, the, 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 horrendous, the horrendous ending, that the parents are willing to come back to Washington State to be there to join in a celebration of Tyler and what he meant to those that knew him there. Um, it's just wonderful. It's, it's great to see. And, uh, you know, I don't, we could go off on another 45 minutes having spent some time now working very closely with the mental health agency. It's, it's just the number one thing I've learned is that it has to be spoken about. It will never be totally addressed until these issues are spoken about openly. So the fact that Holinsky's are willing to do that is so powerful and so important. And I just add, whomever came up with the idea, Washington State, to to think about this and make it happen and put it together, well done. Yeah, amen to that. Okay, so that leads into our fourth down of four downs, bowl games, right? We just talked about, you know, Wazoo, Oregon State, eligible, whoever wins. ASU and Cal need one. Stanford, Colorado, UCLA, Arizona need to win out. Ted, what are your thoughts about bowl games in this conference? And you know, I, I've never seen it like this, to be honest. Nobody's eliminated this late in the season. Yeah, and that's where I was going back 
when we started here that to me this year's unlike I mean we've we've had this in the conference before but maybe not quite to this extreme where um, it is just beating up on yourself and the fact we've had two teams separate themselves at the top but nobody's really fallen out of the bottom and that's usually what you have happen so three through 12 are still breathing um, it also points out to me the power scheduling look nine game conference schedule we we all talk about that and the fact that nobody in this conference plays Wofford right now right wouldn't it be nice if one of these teams at five and five knew they had WCU online university whatever they are or Wofford coming up for I mean that would make sure you get to six and and it's been beaten around a lot in this conference. I know it. Um, I, uh, the, the schools themselves very strongly in favor of the nine game conference schedule. I'm all for that too, but this is the consequence of that is what we're seeing in a year like this. And, and it also points out something else, guys, we didn't talk about ASU and Oregon state and Corvallis Saturday and Herm Edwards goes for two in the win with a minute 30 something to go. And uh, of course there'll be all kinds of data analytic people that'll go around and bat around the, the analytics of that, the probab- win probabilities and all that sort of stuff. But to me, it was a fascinating statement by Herm Edwards of what he wants his program to be. And he's done it before, so it's not a surprise to anybody who knows him. But to do it in that standing where he's trying to get that win, he's trying to make sure his team gets a bowl game out of this after their very good start, I thought that was – to me, it was a huge hat tip to Herm. And jumping on the Beavs, they did get that win – I mean, we were all there last year. Who would have thought that at this point, Oregon State would be playing for a chance to get into a bowl? I mean, that of all the teams on that list, you mentioned Yogi. That's, to me, the most remarkable story is Oregon State and how quickly they've turned things around and they believe and they're in a position to get to a bowl. It's just amazing to me. Yeah, yeah totally. I'm thinking about like the comeback player of the year. You know, we'll, we'll have our awards here at the end of the season on this podcast. But Jake Luton, like last year, this time we had one of their games and nobody really even discussed a sixth year. And for him to get one uh, is awesome. And Ted, just to back you up here, uh, just because I am one of those nerds that talked about the stats and the two point conversion. How about this? Since 2015, over 40 percent of two point conversions are successful. So I know that they gave a lot of slack to. uh Coach Edwards, oh, why would you do it? It's such a low percentage call. It's actually not. It's a pretty high percentage call um, when you look at the history. Yeah, the yeah I, I didn't know that, Yogi, because I know in the NFL, it's right about 50. The two-point conversion is about a 50% play. Now, that's a lump sum, and it doesn't take into account the specific game, your offense against their defense, which is the other thing I always throw up as caution. And the, and the tactical part of it to me that's interesting is that in college, I can understand the more people saying kick the point and play overtime because overtime is fair in college football. Yeah. In the pros, I'd go for two every time. And why am I going to put my fate onto a coin flip, right? So I, I understand those that question Herm's strategy. I just think it was more, to me, can I plagiarize for a moment? It was a humanity moment by Herm. <laughs> I love it. I love that. All right, so let's That's talk a segue. about it. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Segway, go ahead. Humanity moment of the week. Michael, take it away. Well, first of all, I want to clear one thing up. You said you were a 4-6. I think I was a 5-6-40 in my football days back in high school. So I set the record the opposite way. Um, if, wait, and, Michael. Uh, Michael, yes. if you were a 5-6, then take the S off. You had a football day, singular, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Was, I know uh, that feeling very well. I am quick of thought, not of feet. Um, and then the place in the middle of nowhere, Tacoa. 
Tacoa, Washington, C&Ds is where we stopped on the way, which kind of leads me to what I want to talk about. Uh, we have 22 people every week that travel as a, a family to our games. And sometimes, as Ted said, in the big cities, you don't get a lot of time to hang out and, you know, we're busy running around. But when you drive from Spokane to Pullman, and it's an hour, 20-minute drive, and about 70% of that drive, no internet, no phones, nothing works. You're kind of, it reminds me of uh, to Michael Collins, the man on Apollo 11 who was circling the moon. It was an opportunity to really sit down and take that time to have a conversation, which we don't always have time to do in this world. So going to the Palouse, not only was a great atmosphere and everything else, but it gave us an opportunity to maybe connect even a little tighter than we already are. And we're, I feel like we're a great family and it's always sad towards this time of year because we're uh, just to the end of the little journey, but you know, we'll all get back together again in August. Um, but it was nice to get to the Palouse for those reasons too, to connect even further than we are. And speaking of that family, I wanted to uh, mention Alex Grant and his wife, Megan. Uh, when we got to the Safari Lounge, we got the text about 8.55 Saturday night, Madison Elizabeth, their baby came into the world. So hats off to them. And it was, I'm so happy Alex got out of the Palouse and got home in time to see his first baby girl born. Oh man, that's awesome. So Alex is going to buy all the Molson Golden this weekend, in other words, huh? <laughs> yeah, he, he said in Canada, Ted, I think you get about 16 weeks of uh, paternity leave. So we'll see when he gets back. Maybe at the, maybe in Vegas, the tournament. Well, Michael, that's very well said because that's so true about her and, and the crew. Yogi, can I speak for you on this? Always. You always. <laughs> no, the crew is fabulous. And for those who listen and watch our games, I can't speak highly enough about the men and women of our crew. And so uh, this Friday night, we are going to have a worship service, which I think is very vital for our spiritual growth at the Old Pro in Palo Alto. So that will be, and it, look, if you're in the religious mood, stop by. I love that. I think that's a great segue to, uh, to yeah, we'll challenge you to be there and maybe we'll do a live pod or, or two. We'll see what happens. We'll include a picture next week for sure. I think you're too, for sure. I don't know about a pod. <laughs> well said, well said. Okay, fellas, this was awesome. Can't believe we are where we are, which which is crazy. In late November, season's almost over. This pod has been a blast. We appreciate everybody's support and love. Remember, subscribe, share, review, whatever it is you want. Keep kicking us feedback. And in the show notes, um, if there's one thing that you do other than other than anything, just go to uh, holinskyshope.org. We'll make sure that's in there and donate. I'm, I'm on the website now, fellas. They've raised almost half a million dollars um, to help people and help educate, advocate, advocate and destigmatize mental illness. So uh, major props to everything they're doing at Holinsky's Hope and support them if we can. And thanks for the support on the pod. Fellas, let's get back to our prep and we'll see you this weekend. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit